You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 220 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm, I'm, I'm okay, Val. Yep, I'm just okay. Just okay. Why just Well, okay? look, it's the end of the school holidays. Oh, I am yeah. nearly, nearly there. Like it's, I'm at, I'm at that point. You know what it's like when you, you know, when you're sort of like, you're about to renovate your kitchen, for example. And you, you've yeah, lived sure. with this kitchen for five years and it's been totally fine. But in that last week of when you've, you know, still got the old kitchen and the new kitchen is coming, the old kitchen is suddenly, you know, unbearable. I'm there. Oh. oh it's okay. Yes. I'm all right. I'm going to be fine. We're nearly there. But it's good. Yes. You know, it's, look, it's, I really love spending time with my boys. I just find that push me, pull you of trying to do things at the same time very difficult. Yes. And have you ever renovated your kitchen? Yeah, I've renovated a few kitchens. Oh. My, hu- no. my husband is okay. the builder, remember? Yes, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not just a name. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, we've okay. renovated several kitchens together and we've survived. Right. So you know what? My theory is always that if you can renovate with somebody, then you are in for the long haul. Because yes. it is one of the most stressful things that you can do. And we seriously, mm-hmm. like we can't even paint a hallway without four weeks of discussion about what white we're going to be. And the boys really? the boys think it's hilarious now that they're older. Like my, my oldest son is always, you know, we joke about going on the block and he's like, you could not go on the block. You would still be trying to work out what white to use, you know, eight yes. weeks later. <laughs> How would you go on the amazing race, which is a totally different set of skills? No, I think we'd go all right. I, it, it's one of the, yeah. I think we'd be fine. You know, we generally we we generally go pretty well. We we're quite different. We bring different skills sets to our mm. relationship, and um, generally speaking, we'd go okay. But we're also the kind of people who we we go along, we go along, we go along, and then there's just like a massive bust up of just like that's ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you do that? And nobody needs to be doing that on national television. No. This is what I don't really understand about these about people that do these things because you just know that at some point it's really going to drive you mental, and particularly with yes. you know the lack of sleep involved and all the uncertainty and you've got cameras in your face and, mm. and you just know that at some point and they're going to edit that to make you look the worst possible person in the world because that's good yeah, television. Sure. I get that. But, I, yeah, I'm like hats off to you if you think that going on those shows is a good idea, but wow. Yeah, I don't think I could do it. Wow. No. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. There are certain well, things that just need to be kept at home. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we want to give a big shout-out to Live to Write Gal from New Zealand. 
Yay, Ooh. all the way from New Zealand. Love it. Now, Bye. Live to Write Gal has left us a review on iTunes and called it Best Binge. Oh, I love that. So, uh, Live to Write Gal has said, oh, my, binge watching in summer, move over. I'm binge listening to the back catalogue of So You Want to Be a Writer. In the gym, doing housework. My cleaner's on holidays, but I don't care. The bathroom. (laughs) Love the mix of craft advice, interviews with writers, social media insights, word of the day even. Yay. (laughs) This is You you know she's just saying that, don't you? (laughs) She's just saying that. She's just Um, just being kind. Look, she's mentioned everything, so she's being kind. This is motivating and topical. And did I mention the humour and rapport? Just saying. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you, Alison. Don't ever stop. <laughs> awesome. Right. Well, apparently we've got no signs of stopping. Do you sometimes think, like I, I often think about, you know, when we see that people are listening to the back catalogue, have you ever gone back and listened to our early episodes? In the car, sometimes they just appear, like they just they just start. Well, so, so have you ever listened accident. to episode one? Oh, I can't remember. Not probably not. Not recently, yeah, I, anyway. I'm too scared. I don't. I don't, no, no. I just honestly don't think I could listen to us for episode one because it was all very new for us, wasn't it? And we weren't really. It was. We weren't really sure what we were doing. We were kind of yeah. making it up as we went along. Yes. I remember those are the days, but there was no word of the week back then. I remember word that. Of the week, but life is better now that there is. So. <laughs> so much better. So much better. So, much better. <laughs> so we're going to move on and we have uh, a great interview for you today. And in fact, it's a little bit longer than usual. So we are going to plunge straight into our competition this week. So our competition, this is a great book. It is, um, we have three to give away. It's called Rooms with a View, The Secret Life of Grand Hotels by Adrian Morby. Uh, The world's grandest hotels have provided glamorous backgrounds for some of the most momentous and almost bizarre events of world history. Salvador Dali once asked room service at Hotel Le Maurice in Paris to send him up a flock of sheep. When they were duly brought to his room, he got out a gun and fired blanks at them. George Bernard Shaw tried to uh, learn the tango at Reed's Palace in Madeira and the details of India's independence were worked out in the ballroom of the Imperial Hotel Delhi. Incredible, startling and often hilarious tales from the world's best hotels. And you can win a copy uh, by going to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 5th of February. And I have a confession to make. And that is because yes. I am obsessed with hotels. I love hotels. There's something about hotels that, you know, nice hotels that make me go all gaga. And I, 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 just, I just love everything about them. And when there was, do you remember that, that show that was on, um, uh, that was on called Hotel with James Brolin and Connie <laughs> Salica? No. Don't you? When I when no, you were I didn't little? See it. Oh no. that's my favourite show. All I ever all I want to do is live in a hotel. That's my secret dream. Live in okay. a hotel. Anyway, um, which is why I got this book as a giveaway for everyone. <laughs> Just so that you could have a copy. 
Well, no, I'm giving them all away. I just thought oh. that there are other people like me out there who would love hotels. Okay. If you okay. are on Team Val with the hotels, then please yeah. let her know. She needs your support right now. Yeah. Who wouldn't be? I mean, really. I like hotels. I don't want to live in one, though. I think I would get oh, like I'd love ca- to I would get cabin fever. Are you nah. just going to live there and have room service delivered for the rest yeah. of your life? Is that well, the plan? Well, housekeeping, more importantly. Oh, okay. And the option for room service. Yeah. Okay. And All I wouldn't right. eat breakfast or lunch in my room, but I might eat dinner with my in-house movies. Hello. And your cat. Yes. Mm, right. Mm. Okay. Great. Anyway, let's move on. Okay. I don't – I did learn French at school, but it was only in year seven. Oh, no, I let I let it slip that it was French. Oh, well, too late now. It's vous prêt pour le mot de la semaine? Some some more. How long are we doing this for? See Pret. 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 Oh, I should have actually, I think I got that wrong actually because I asked you, are you ready for the word of the week? But this week it's the words of the week. Oh no, what a disaster. Can I just say so ready in English so that people know what we're talking about? Right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so the words of the week this week are bees knees. You know, we've all heard this phrase yeah, and it's generally used to mean excellent or awesome or whatever. Like last week I met a guy who thought he was the bee's knees. He so wasn't. Um, and you might think that it originates from something to do with bees or knees. But actually It's a nonsense slang term that came out of the flapper era of the 1920s, a time when similar nonsense phrases like the cat's pyjamas emerged as well. There you go. Right. Bees knees. That's where bees knees comes from. Do you know what? I I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know that there was no actual thing behind that. But because you were doing that phrase while you were talking, and practicing your French on us, I did. I looked up. Do bees have knees? And bees do have. You might be interested to know that bees do have knees. Because I thought they didn't have knees, but they do have knees. They have joints in their legs, and they have femurs and tibia, the bones which jo- the knee joins in humans. But they don't have kneecaps. So there okay. you go. Bees do don't have knees? kneecaps. In case anybody needed to know that. The things you learn on this amazing podcast, no wonder people are like tuning in in droves. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. Let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. Now, our writer-in-residence is one half of the duo that have written The Woman Who Fooled the World. Belle Gibson's Cancer Con. It was written by Bo Donnelly and Nick Toscano, and I've interviewed Bo Donnelly, who is an award-winning journalist who's covered a number of different stories and 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 beats at the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, it's his work and his investigative skills have been recognised by the United Nations and the Melbourne Press Club. He has also been a finalist for Australian journalism's highest honour, the Walkley Award. And he wrote this book, The Woman Who Fooled the World. I could not put it down. Um, It's absolutely fascinating reading. There is way more in this book, as I discovered, uh, than that was out in the press. I hope you enjoy this interview with Bo Donnelly. 
Thanks so much for joining us today, Bo. Thank you for having me. Now, I have read your book cover to cover. It was a page turner. I I devoured it. Um, it's The Woman Who Fooled the World, Belle Gibson's Cancer Con. Now, I, I know the title says it all, but just in case some readers aren't sure what it's about, can you just tell us briefly what the book is about? Sure. The, the book is about um, a young woman from Brisbane called Belle Gibson. She um, really uh, emerged from, from nowhere on social media in around 2013 and um, she she rose to prominence as a young wellness blogger on Instagram who claimed to have cured herself of terminal brain cancer with a healthy diet. Um, the problem was um, that Belle Gibson never actually had cancer and um, she was exposed a couple of years later um, for having lied about this and um, eventually she was she was prosecuted in the Federal Court of Australia for misleading and deceptive conduct. Um, the, the reason um, this case became so high profile was because her story was not just picked up by uh, the mainstream media, but she was also embraced by Apple, the world's most valuable company, and Penguin, the, um, the world's biggest publisher. And... Um, what emerged uh, later on was that Penguin, who who published her first book and and, and um, apparently were gearing up to create a second book with her, never actually fact-checked any of the claims that she'd made about her health or diagnosis or prognosis or you know these extraordinary claims of having beaten um, a terminal disease with healthy eating, um, and also Apple likewise never bothered to fact check any of her story and um, that, that they really partnered with her quite heavily and were set to feature her uh, smartphone app as a standalone app, one of only 12 in the world on their new um, Apple Watch prototype. So it, it was a story that really, um, really uh, captivated um, a lot of people in Australia and around the world and, and, it, and it crossed many different um, areas of the health and wellness and, and cancer and technology and publishing and fraud and mm-hmm. yes it was it was it was a very sad and um, well it was a very sad story really in the end mm-hmm. now before we get into the incredible research and and just the process of writing this book can you just give people just a brief potted history of of your your career so far and what's you know led you uh, into this space sure so i um was originally <coughs> interested in um documentary filmmaking and film and, and started a film and television degree um at the queensland college of art in brisbane um I didn't finish the degree and I ended up moving to Melbourne and uh, going to Monash University and taking up um, a Bachelor of Journalism. Um, throughout that course, I was um, freelancing a little bit and, and when I say freelancing, I mean writing for free um, <laughs> as most young aspiring writers are, are, are doing. 
when they're trying to get their foot in the door. And um, and then I, uh, after I finished my degree, or sort of at the tail end of my degree, I started working at um, Sin Radio Station, which is run by RMIT in Melbourne. And um, that's where I met uh, my co-author on, on this book, Nick Toscano, and we were both uh, reporters on this uh, current affairs radio show called Panorama. And we ended up running the show after about uh, maybe a year or 18 months with a group of reporters. And um, by the time we had both finished university, um, Nick and I both ended up going on and working at um, Fairfax Media's stable of local newspapers, which have since shut down. And these were like the free... Um, weekly magazines that you get in, in the letterbox. And so we were covering local news and, and um, you know, local politics. And um, eventually we started um, also working casual shifts at The Age in Melbourne. And after a few years, that led to um, a job at The Age uh, for both of us within about a few months. So we've had very parallel careers. And, um, and yeah, we were both at the age, have both been at the age for probably four years. Nick is still there and I left earlier this year uh, to move overseas with my family. So can you remember the first incident that's kind of made your brain tweak and go, I'm going to pay attention to Belle Gibson? Yes, I... I was had a former colleague over at my house for dinner one night and she was about to leave and she mentioned this woman called Belle Gibson and she said, you've got to look into her. Um, I've heard that, you know, she's out there cancer scaling and she's got this huge profile online and I thought, okay, great story. Um, so, and, and I told my friend to send me the details and she did, and she a couple of days later she sent her a text message with Belle Gibson's name and a link to her, I think it was her Instagram profile, mm. and it said something like, this is the girl who's cancer scanning. Mm. And I went on and had a very, very quick look at Belle Gibson's Instagram page, and it was like, it was like those of all wellness bloggers. It was, you know, very carefully curated selection yes. of photos, and it was showing this... Um, apparently wonderful life, um, but I, I didn't really. There wasn't a, there wasn't a lot there. There wasn't a lot there that I could use um, or, or, or really look or look into at that stage. And working um, in a in a newsroom for a daily newspaper, it's it's kind of impossible to um, go down the rabbit hole with every lead like this yeah. because there's no obvious. I mean, there is, in hindsight, there is an obvious useful there. But at the time, you know, we, we get tip-offs like this all the time. Yeah. And um, most of them amount to nothing. And it's normally a friend or a former business partner um, who's got an axe to grind and who wants to bring someone down. So I, I didn't really do anything about it. And this friend of mine kept hassling me and hassling me and texting me and calling me and telling me to pull my finger out. And... Um, so one day at the age, I had uh, I was running downstairs to get a coffee at the cafe, 
and um, she she texted me again, and I thought I could stuff it. So I um I called the contact that she had um, given me, and, and this is the person, supposedly a friend of Bell Gibson's, um, who who was supposed to be our, our source on this and, and expose everything. And I called her while I was ordering a, a coffee, and I didn't have a notepad or pen or anything. Um, it was really unprofessional. And um, I, uh, I ended up on the phone to her for over an hour, sitting sitting out on the steps out the front of Media House in Melbourne and just listening to her and talking to her and asking her a bunch of questions and trying to get to the bottom of, of what was going on and what her motivation was. And at the end of the phone call, I was pretty much hooked on the story and I believed what she was saying. And her, her whole, um, what she told me at the time was that her mother's friend had just died of cancer and her mother's friend, um, had been talking about stopping conventional treatment and she had said to her, Oh, you should, you know, I know Belle Gibson and look what she's done. She saved her own life. Um, and on it went. So she felt a tremendous amount of, uh, of guilt, even, even though, um, you know, her advice didn't lead to her mother's friend changing her treatment plan or anything like that. Mm. And um, it didn't lead to her death or anything like that. But th this friend of Belle Gibson's just felt um, terrible about uh, promoting what she thought was a false story and, and being sucked in herself. So she was she was very um, upfront about wanting to stop Belle Gibson. And um, so, so that was really, that's really what piqued my interest. And um, at that point, I I mentioned it to Nick, and Nick was straight away on board, um, and we started looking into the story and pulling everything there was um, on the public record about Bell Gibson, and it, n nothing really seemed to make sense or add up. Mm. And a lot of her statements about her health and um, her medical dramas and also her fundraising activities her age, her qualifications, where she lived, it, it all was very muddled and um, in places it just contradicted who she contradicted herself. Um, within, I think, a week or two, we had about half a dozen people in Belgium in circle all telling us that she did not have cancer and that she was cancer scamming. But not one of those people were willing to go on the record and put their names to, to those allegations. So Nick and I had a chat to our editors and the lawyers for the age, and the lawyers came back to us in about 30 seconds and said, <laughs> you can't run this story. Um, and we, I mean, to be honest, we didn't, at that stage, we didn't want to run that story. And, and I don't think we would have even if we were given the green light, because I, I can't think of a, a story in history where a journalist has called someone out for not having cancer. Mm. But um, at, at that point, you know, but before all this blew up, we didn't really know enough about Bell Gibson and her history. Mm. Um, and I mean, what if, what if she had another medical condition and, and, and we said she, she wasn't sick or what if she had a benign tumor? I mean, it was just, it, it could just be so damaging, um, mm. you know. So for, then, for her and for us. So they, so they told you 
not to run it. So what happened then? You you sat on it, did more research. What happened then? Um, so I think our editor used the term something like um, go and find a low-hanging fruit, which is something that um, editors always say. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, when you're on a big story and you're spending a lot of time on it and, and um, they they just want to put a story out. Um, mm. and, and get the ball rolling, um, and in this case, it was the it was really the right advice. So we figured that if Belle Gibson was lying about cancer, she's she's probably lying about other aspects of her story, yeah. and we knew um, that the obvious place to start would be the fundraisers. So she'd held various fundraising appeals, um, both in person and online. And she had publicly claimed she had given away thousands of dollars to these charities, both in Australia and overseas. She'd also made public statements in her book and in media interviews about giving um, percentage, uh, portions of her profits away to charities. And these range from 30% to 80% to 95% to 100%. Um, and she'd also named all the charities and we'd done some reporting um, with some of those charities in the past like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and, and we had contacts there. So we um, we just called the charities up and asked them if, if they knew about Bell Gibson and if they'd received the money and the answers that came back were pretty much unanimous and um, they hadn't heard of her and, and no, they hadn't seen the money and they were pretty upset that their their um, brand had been used um, in her fundraising appeals. So mm. we knew that we could run that story um, yeah. and we ran that story with 100% confidence and we knew that pretty quickly, we thought within maybe 12 hours to 24 hours, um, the conversation would turn on social media and people would start openly questioning other aspects of her story, uh, namely the health claims. Um, that in, that actually happened. The story went up online on a Sunday night and, and it ran in the newspaper on the Monday morning. I think it went up online at about nine o'clock on a Sunday night and by before half past nine, there was, there was, there was uh, like a, a torrent of, of um, questions about her health and um, anything that was at all critical or, or asking for proof of her health claims, um, Bell Gibson was deleting and then people were commenting about her trying to uh, delete the comments and mm. stay in control. Um, and then we were watching at the same time her social media profiles being switched to private and um, she was purging literally hundreds and hundreds of photos from her Instagram feeds and, and comments and um it was effectively trying to cover her tracks, but yes. it, was, it was definitely too late. Now, I want to talk about her Instagram feed because in the book you make various references to certain posts that she, uh, you know, put out over time on Instagram and mm. social media generally, which are now deleted and you write that they are now deleted. Did you have some kind of really meticulous, you know, saving process? Um, what what were you doing mm. at the time? Did you kind of think, I've got to save this for now in case it gets deleted, even though you were nowhere even near breaking the story at the time, supposedly? Yeah. So 
before we wrote the first, so, so in in that period of us looking looking into Bell Gibson over those couple of weeks, and, and then working um, and, and focusing just on the fundraising story, we were screenshotting everything. Mm. Um, so so we have thousands of screenshots of of um, comments and photos um, and pages relating to Bell Gibson, and also. Um, blog posts and um, uh, you know endorsements from other other people and companies which have also disappeared. Yeah. Even some news articles have disappeared. You know you can't find them anywhere, but we, we've yeah. still got some screenshots of those. Um, but um, th- there's another great resource called the Wayback Machine um, that we used, and you can go in there and 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 dig around and 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 find things that it can can take a lot of time but you can you can find some great stuff using that resource um the thing that really helped us with this story and i've never experienced this with any other story i've covered was that we were contacted by so many readers we were contacted by hundreds and hundreds of people um Mm. cancer patients families of cancer patients doctors nurses um people who were interested in fundraising people who were just really, really pissed off mm. at the idea that someone would fake cancer yeah. um, and steal from charity. Mm. And um, also some of her fans and friends and former colleagues and, and friends. And a lot of these people had their own concerns about Bell Gibson in the couple of years before we started looking into her and they had taken screenshots themselves. And so... Mm. We were just inundated with um, sort of messages and, and um, the backstory of Elle Gibson and photos of her f- from her childhood and screenshots um, that we hadn't even seen before and screenshots of text message conversations between her and friends or former friends who had had concerns but didn't want to speak to the media. Um, it, it was really overwhelming and, and really, really strange because so many people suspected something, um, but no one was willing to say anything beforehand because the thought of calling someone out for not having cancer if they were wrong was just it was almost more unthinkable than mm. you know faking cancer. Mm, mm. So you were inundated with all of these hundreds of you know pieces of material and 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 stories. Mm. What kind of, I'm interested, I'm, I know a lot of listeners would be interested in your process in, like, what did you actually do? How did you, did you categorize it as they came in? Did you have some kind of, what system did you have to then access it later when you needed it? Um, we had a terrible system and <laughs> it, it caused, um, it, it, yeah, it really, <laughs> it really bothered me later on because it took so long to go through it all. But um, basically, Mitch and I put our email addresses at the bottom of every story that we ran about mm-hmm. Bell Gibson and her business, the whole pantry. And as the emails rolled in, if we weren't, um, if you know, we'd, if we weren't copied in with each other, we'd obviously share them and forward them to each other. And if it was something we could follow up immediately for another story so so in the in the aftermath of the first story we were trying to ultimately get to 
Bell Gibson is faking cancer. If yeah. it was someone um, claiming to have access to medical records, we would follow that up immediately. If yes. it was someone claiming to be a family member or a close friend, we'd follow that up immediately. If it was someone um, saying that they knew her in grade eight and um, she was a bully, we we would thank them and sort of put that aside. Mm. So we just basically had an email folder. Everything went into that. If we could follow it up, we would. If we couldn't, we hung on to it. Um, and so when it all died down, and a couple of years later when we came to writing the book, um, you know, we had the painful task of going through those hundreds and hundreds of emails and contacting everyone and seeing who wanted to talk and seeing what we could firm up and yes and um, yeah but but I mean at the same time we're very lucky because we had all those leads to go on you know it it was it was very hard getting people to talk in this story and and um, you know to have had people contact us, although many of the people who contacted us originally in, in the heat of the moment when the news story was published didn't actually want to talk when we did contact them um, for a comment. Mm-hmm. So um, that was interesting and, and that was usually because they just didn't want to be associated with Bell Gibson in any way. They don't want their name to come up in a Google search next to hers or cancer scanning. Yes, particularly the people who... Uh, you know, from Penguin and Apple and and those sorts of organisations. Yes, particularly those people. Now, um, excuse me, you, um, when did you think this could be a book? At what point in the process? Or did you think that from Uh, the start? (laughs) No, I actually, it was, um, it was set, September, it was September 2016, um, and I, I actually just, it's kind of funny, I didn't have a story that day to pitch to my editors, and I was sort of going through all my emails thinking, what, what can I do before I'm sent out um, to cover a fire or, or something that I didn't really want to do? Um, I thought I'd need to pitch something um, to, to get ahead of it, and... Um, I came across one of the emails, one of the emails about Bell Gibson, and then it sort of reminded me of this treasure trove of information that we had. And I, I just, the idea just popped into my head that I thought, um, uh, you know, this could be a book. And I was having a drink with a couple of age colleagues later that day, and I, um, I mentioned this to them, and, and they sort of had this light bulb moment too and said, oh, my God. How did we not think of this before? Yes, it's a book. Mm. And um, then I asked another colleague who, who had written a book with Scribe, who was our publisher. Mm. And I, I asked her for the, the contact details of, of who she was dealing with there. And she passed on the, um, the name and email address of Henry Rosenblum, who's the founder and director. And I just I just fired off an email to him. And it was, it was a two-liner. I, I just introduced myself and I said... I reckon there's a book in this. Mm. Would you like to have a chat or would you like to have a coffee? And he wrote back, um, encouragingly, he wrote back immediately mm. and said, yes, um, come and see me next week. And, and Nick and I did. And that, that was pretty much it. And then 14 months later, 15 months later, um, it was done. 
So you and Nick collaborated on this book while you had your day jobs or was it part of your day job in a sense? How did that work? How did the did you juggle it? So we yeah, we we juggled it. We we were working full time and then we took eight weeks off. Um we took eight weeks unpaid leave and we used our book advance to fund that. And then we sat at Nick's kitchen table um, at his apartment in Melbourne uh, for eight weeks, and we uh, just just got into it and and started pulling everything together. Um, and in our spare time and at nights and on weekends, we'd we'd do a lot of work. Mainly at nights, actually, after work, we did a lot of work on the book um, while we were while we were at work at the age. Um, and, yeah, go on. I, no, sorry, that was that was it. Oh, yeah. Um, and on a practical level, how did you divide it up? Because there's two of you, your co-authors and obviously co-investigators, mm. uh, but in the actual writing process, the, the, the voice in it is very clear, it's very strong, it is unfaltering, and it's very smooth and seamless. So I'm curious to know how two people um, – did that? How did you divide it on a practical level? Well, thanks, thanks for that. That's that's nice to hear because we were we were worried about that um, at various points while we were writing the book. Um, Nick and I, as I said earlier, we've had parallel careers and we're good mates, and we have a fairly similar writing style. And whenever each of us has ever worked on a big story a big feature story or something like this. Um, we've always gone to each other and, and just had the other person proofread it and, and check over and make sure that, you know, we're not about to embarrass ourselves by saying something stupid. And um, so, so we have, we have um, a, a, a good, you know, we've built, um, I, I guess, really good trust and, and we sort of rely on each other in that way. When it came to actually sitting down and writing the book, um, our, our approach was kind of like we'd be sitting at we'd be sitting at Nick's kitchen table. We'd have um, we'd have just finished a chapter and we're looking at what we're doing next, and we just say you know what we wanted to do. So um, if if Nick was interested, Nick had just read John Ronson's book, so he'd been publicly shamed. And he wanted to write a book about the public shaming of Bell Gibson. And um, so he said, look, I'm going to pick this off and, and get it going. I had been in contact with uh, a young woman in Melbourne who was a fan of Bell Gibson's and who actually had cancer and has very, very serious cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd spent a lot of time with her, a lot of time talking to her and, and had gone to quite a few appointments with her at the hospital and and felt a, a very deep connection with her. So it made sense that I started writing that chapter. Um, in the end, though, her chapter turned into two chapters, a part one and a part two, and Nick um, ended up meeting her and, 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 and um, coming along to some appointments as well. So he wrote part of that chapter as well. And... Um, Look, whatever each of us wrote, we we swapped 
you know, we'd swap it over and the other person would take a, a red pen to it and, um, and, and, and scribble all over it. And, um, by the end of it, pretty much everything that's in the book is, is written by both of us, you know, every yeah. sentence. Did you map it out Each first? Each of us had some sort of input. Did you map it out Can first? Did you map it out first? Yeah, and then map out the, the, the narrative arc. Did you map out, you know, the, the chapter orders, how it was going to unfold, or did you start writing bits as, and then pieced it together? No, so, so we did map it out. Our, this was all new to us. So the, the biggest sort of piece that we had written for the, for the paper uh, would have been a few thousand words. Yeah. And and all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, this this publisher was talking about eighty to a hundred thousand words, mm-hmm. and um, he said to us he'd consider offering us a book deal if we sent him a proposal. And what he wanted in a proposal was a chapter breakdown, mm-hmm. and a synopsis, and a couple of examples of our writing. And he didn't care if these were the, the intros to a few different chapters or half a chapter or half the book. He just wanted to see something. Mm. Um, so we sat down and we did the chapter breakdown. And the, the synopsis was really quite simple. The chapter breakdown was, was uh, reasonably easy to do, but it took... It just took, we, we we sort of had to work on it for a while, over a couple of weeks. So we, we'd sit down and, and, and chat about it. But then after sleeping on it for a few days, it would change. So we knew we had to focus on social media and we knew we had to focus on the failures of the media. We knew we had to dig into Bell Gibson's background. We knew we had to get some info on Penguin and Apple. We knew um, we had to focus heavily on cancer, but we wanted to find cancer patients who are actually directly affected by Bell Gibson. So fans and family members and people who were sucked in. Um, so yeah, that, that's what we did. And now, and then we started a couple of chapters and, um, and we tied them off to the publisher and, and he liked what he saw. But the, the most, the most helpful part of that process was mapping it out, the, the chapter structure, because we had yes. some sort of loose plan. So I'm fascinated. Yeah, I'm fascinated by what you've just said because it sounds like, from what you've just said, you've ma- you mapped it out and kind of created a whole lot of ext- more work for yourself. It's not like you took the research that you had already done on the story and turned it into a book. It's it sounds like you took that and had to to, to go to a whole other level of of research. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's it's well, it's sort of like the 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 idea of at, at that point writing a book just about Bell Gibson didn't really appeal to either of us. The the reason we were interested in writing the book was because we wanted to look at at how it affected people, and we wanted to we wanted to look into this this wellness phenomenon, and we wanted to look at misinformation on the internet, and we wanted to touch in as much detail as we could in 100,000 words on all these different all this sort of perfect storm of factors that enabled Belle Gibson to rise to, to the great heights that she did. Yeah. Um, so so we, we wanted to, we really wanted this to be the book that, that covered off this issue. We didn't just want to churn something out 
because you know it, it was a, it was a hot topic. We wanted to actually you know um, get into get into the story, not just to Bell Gibson, but but um, Penguin and Apple and and, and yes. everything that everyone and everything that facilitated her rise. Right, because it is so comprehensively researched, and there's so much in this book. And I had obviously wrongly assumed that a lot of that was just not what would necessarily make a news story, you know, because it's it was you also included elements of the process of your you know discovery of people of of you know and, and meeting people and stuff like that. Um, uh, but I realise now that you did that specifically for the book. It's not like you had all this extra stuff that you hadn't uh, published in the age. Um, I, mm. I, I was particularly fascinated by um, uh, Belle's parents and, and your, um, you know, depiction of, of her, her parents mm. and their interactions with you Um and some of those interactions were not, you know, part of an interview. Some of those interactions were just general everyday interactions. How did you make a decision on what to include or, or, or you know, how to paint them kind of thing? Yeah, that's that's a very good question and that was a very difficult, that was probably the most difficult chapter to write in the book. Mm. Um, but I think, I think it, need, I, it needs to be in there. Um, but basically, just just um, to give your listeners some background, we had heard through other journalists and people who had come across Belle Gibson's mother and stepfather some stories that painted them as fairly colourful characters, and we knew that we had to get them. We knew that we had to talk to them um, because we thought um, it would it would create. I guess it would shed some light on, on where Bell Gibson came from. Yeah. And um, so I spent a lot of time trying to get in touch with them and trying to convince um, her mother, Natalie, to let me come down, let me fly down to Adelaide um, to meet them and, and do a sit-down interview with them. And the, the conversations... Um, I, I don't know, I guess they, they, they were very jumbled and kind of chaotic and they went for hours at a time and um, they, we never really got to a, a point where um, they said, yes, come down and, and we'll do the interview. Um, there, there was at times they said they wouldn't do an interview unless we paid them and, and we, um, we can't do that. And as journalists, we, we can't pay people, and, and that's the same for the book. And um, even if we could, we had no money, so that, that wasn't an option. And um, so, but but we but I, I would I would just keep talking to them, and they they would tell me so much information about Bell and about their lives, um, and some of it contradicted other information they would tell me. And the mother would tell me about her various medical conditions and um, all sorts of fascinating information that that we just knew had to be included in the book. So, and when it came to picking what to what to put in and what to leave out, I was very much for putting every single word in, pretty much covering off every single thing that we were told. And Nick 
disagreed and wanted to leave some things out. Um, he was concerned that um, just concerns there. He was concerned about their their mental health and mm -hmm. and about um, putting certain information in that it, it may be um, it could be exploiting them. And um, I, I disagreed. Mm. And so what proportion of it ended up in there? All of it or a percentage of it? Um, I'd say around 80% of it. Mm. I, I, think mm -hmm. in, in, I think everything that needs to be included is included. Nick, Nick, um, Nick convinced me with a, with a, a few arguments um, about things that about things they had said that it didn't really add anything. He, he was right. It didn't really add anything to the narrative. Um, and it, 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 it could be, it, it, it could actually be more damaging to their, to their reputation by including it in there. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I mean, this, and this is something that we, we had to sort of grapple with throughout the whole writing of the book with everyone yes. we included in there. Yes, and and I get the sense that there's a, a, a fair bit of restraint in what you more you could have said about Bell as well, um, and presumably yeah. more yeah. information that you know uh, that that could have been um, uh, written about in in a in a different way. But it's very um, uh, it's it's. It's, I don't know, I just think it's a brilliant piece of writing. I think it's very balanced. Um, what yeah. was some of the well, most we, 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 No, no, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, we, there, was, there was so much more information um, that we were offered about Bell Gibson from, from various people and mm. a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it paints a picture of a, of a horrible person and, and mm. we don't know we didn't go. We, we didn't sort of go through the process of even checking out some of that information, some of the allegations that were made against her, because they weren't relevant, even if they were true, or or they might be relating to something that a you know a teenager does, and and you know yeah. many teenagers do, and it's not really it's just not really relevant to the story, um, and we were never interested in, you know. And taking down Belle Gibson and destroying her her reputation. She, I mean, she'd already effectively destroyed her own reputation. We just wanted to 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 basically um, chronicle the story and and look more into it. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of information that was left out of there, just simply because it's it's not relevant and it, and it's it's too personal, mm. and um, it has it has nothing to do with her public profile um, that she she traded off and you know mm. that relates to her illness and her business and um so, so that's where we try to keep the focus i think you've treated her very fairly what in the process of your you know research um what were some of the most surprising turns um you know in that process were there surprising turns um the the, I, it, the it wasn't the biggest surprise, but it was a real um, very annoying. No one wanted to talk to us. 
<laughs> for the book. Yes. So anyone <laughs> anyone who had had any association with Bell Gibson um, had run a mile from her, and um, so that was that was kind of surprising because we we've this always this does happen when you're writing stories even for the newspaper. You'll talk to people who, who don't want to be named or, or for whatever reason don't want to be part of the story. But this was like every call or nine out of ten calls that we would make, people just shut us down. Um, and they wouldn't and, even talk to you off the record. No, and, and so that's and that's where we'd go if, if if it was if it was just someone minor, we would offer them, you know, look, is there anything you can offer, or can you point us in the right direction, or is there any other information that you can just provide? You don't have to be named in this. Mm. Um, and many people wanted nothing to do with that. And said no, and then for the bigger players who were involved, with some of them we offered them anonymity, and some we didn't. And and, and the ones we didn't were really the people who were closest to her and who and who endorsed her, or who had public profiles themselves. Um, but it is it is fair to say that all of these people were taken in by by Bell's story. And um, apart from wanting to get as far away from her as possible, um, they all felt cheated and exposed and um, they were very hurt and angry as well. Mm. But, um, you know, our reason for including them in the book is that some of these people had huge followings themselves and they they promoted Bell Gibson very heavily online and, and, and to their own fans. And um, I guess the, the point we're trying to make is that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and, and people need to just apply a little bit more scrutiny to, mm. to claims, especially when they're when they're aimed at the most vulnerable people in our community. What um, what was the most enjoyable part of the process, and what was the most challenging? Um, enjoyable. <laughs> this book. <laughs> This book nearly killed us. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a, it's a tour de force. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know what was enjoyable about it. It was enjoyable <laughs> um, when, <laughs> it's enjoyable when I, I didn't have to read over it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Just saw it on a bookshelf <laughs> in a shop. Um, look, the, the yeah. most, the most enjoyable bits were, um, writing long form nonfiction. Yeah. So the things that we can't do often as journalists, you know, I, I could, I think with, with Kate Thomas, the woman in the book who, who actually has cancer, we devoted, I think, five, uh, around 5,000 words to her story and, and we went, and, and we went into um, a huge amount of detail. And that was really enjoyable, apart from the, a very difficult subject matter. It was enjoyable to write in that kind of detail. Um, the investigative side of of researching this book was also something that is often hard to do as as journalists day to day. But it was that was a fun thing to do to actually sink your teeth into one aspect of the story and within two weeks digging around and getting every little every little uh, bit of information that we could so that we could write 
um, uh, write a scene almost like um, like a movie scene. So yeah, we've got it's... that many people and we've spoken to that many people in the room that we can we we are one hundred percent certain how something went down and we can and we can almost offer these different points of view. That was really enjoyable. I'd like um, to touch on that. Just if we can just expand mm. on that a bit, because there are mm. scenes that you can, when you're reading the book, you're totally the reader is totally there, and it is you know just beautifully written um, new mm. journalism in a sense. So mm. I wanted to ask you how you got that confidence to practically be in the room. Is it because you literally talked to? multiple people in that room and they all described their points of view and you then wrote the yeah. wrote the wrote the, yeah. the consolidated version. Yeah. So so for instance with um with our opening scene at the yeah. funeral and, and the incident back at um back at the wake, we yes. I, I I think I would have called I would have called over three or four dozen people wow. um, to get information about that. And the most of them said they wouldn't talk to us. Most of them shut it down. Or, or okay. if, I, if I would have called or emailed, mm. they shut it down or they didn't respond. Um, but in the end, we had, we had a, a fair few people who were there telling us what happened and all their stories married up. And... Mm. We're really blessed to be able to, to to have that. I mean, that's such a such great luck to to get those people um, talking to us and to have witnessed something and and telling us uh, a story that is is verifiable and we can confirm it down to these tiny little details. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's what we did, and then, and then we would take take their stories and, and the things that were confirmed, we, mm-hmm. we would report. And then if there was um, uh, a great line, a great quote that someone would give us, we would use that to um, punctuate that part of the, the story yeah. um, or, or just, you know, provide a bit more detail. But, but there's so many little things in the book, like, you know, the, the color of the, the pew in the church on the Sunshine Coast in that opening chapter. Mm. You know, I, for that, like, I, we actually called the church. We actually called mm. the church to check it after we saw the, the photos on, on Facebook of the other services. Mm. Um, and we, we saw the color and then we called and checked that, you know, the color of that pew had been the same two years earlier. Right. And then... <laughs> When I was in Brisbane, I was I was up at the Sunshine Coast, and I drove out to the church and looked mm. through the window. Like it, we went over every every little detail. Um, so, yeah. Yes. It's, uh, so accurate. I can I can um, say it's accurate. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, what what's what are you doing now? <laughs> You, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, uh, um, I mean, that book's now out. Um, uh, what are you doing? Uh, are you working on another book, or, or what's next? <laughs> um, I, I have an idea. I, we have a couple of ideas for other books, but what I'm doing is, I my wife is from Ireland, a small village in the southeast of Ireland, 
and we've moved over here um, with our kids who are three and five because um, she wants to be closer to her family. And so we're here for the next few years and um, we're living in a very small village and I've just got a house that we're about to move into. And for work, I am doing some block laying on a building site, which has been so much fun because I don't have to think. And, um, <laughs> and it's just really, it's just really nice just picking up blocks and moving blocks and not thinking and not worrying about books and, and journalism. Um, except it's freezing. And then I'm also doing a bit of writing for um, a soap opera over here every wow. every couple of months. I, I go in the story room there and do some writing. Um, and that's been, that's been really fun as well and really different. That's just, um, and, it, and it's sort of, it, it's, it's a kind of an easy transition from um, journalism because uh, for a soap, they just need these these really extreme and sometimes unbelievable stories, and um, I've, I've got lots of them from from reporting for the yes. newspaper, and um, <laughs> and I'm working on a couple of news stories as well for the for the um, for one of the newspapers over here. So, right. but but at, at the moment, it's sort of just it's a few little things until we get settled and, and get into our place, and and then. Um, Reevaluate, and Nick and I will will look at doing another book, probably together at some point. Right. So it sounds like you've closed the chapter on this book, but and 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 from reports, Bill Gibson is leading a mm. uh, a, a, a kind of a unassuming, seemingly trying to be inconspicuous life in Northcote or somewhere mm. in Melbourne. Um, mm. uh, do you think that this is the last that we've heard of Bill Gibson? No, no, I don't think so. Um, it's it's probably the last that we, that will um, be involved with writing about this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think Belle Gibson, first of all, because she's never apologised um, yeah. and hasn't really shown any remorse or, or shown up to her court case. I, I think she's. Um, She's made it very difficult for people to move past what she's done. So I think she'll always be um, an, a newsworthy topic. And um, I, I don't think she can help herself. I think she will end up going on social media and saying something again. And I think the, the media will, will jump on it. Um, we also have heard rumours from some people who were, who were close to her um, about her interest in starting other businesses, online businesses and apps. And that wouldn't surprise me at all. And um, I think I think that will happen. Whether her name is attached to it or whether she's working in the background um, for, for another company, I'm not sure. But, um, I mean, one thing we know about Belle Gibson is that she's, she's very charismatic and um, she's very, very media savvy. Um, and she's she's quite intelligent, and um, yeah, she's very ambitious. So I think mm. I think I don't think it's over. 
Okay, wow. All right, well, congratulations on the book. I, it's highly recommended reading. Um, I think it's fantastic and I haven't actually been able to stop talking about it. Uh, so thank you so much for your <laughs> time you. today, Bo. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for making the time. Okay, we know our community loves short story challenges. They're a fantastic way to get the creative juices flowing, exercise your writing muscles and finesse your skills. So hang on to your hats. You're going to be blown away by our exciting news. Beginning 2nd February 2018, the Australian Writers' Centre is launching a new monthly short story competition called Furious Fiction. It will go live on the first Friday of every month. When a new challenge opens, you'll be given a set of prompts and you will have 55 hours to give us your best 500 word or fewer story for the chance to win, drum roll, $500. That's right, the winning story every month comes with a cash prize of $500. This is the first competition of its kind and we're so excited to launch it. The first challenge will open on 2nd February 2018. So head to writerscentercomau slash furious and join the Furious Fiction fan club. That's writerscentercomau slash furious to be notified as soon as the competition opens. Good luck. There you go, Bo Donnelly, talking to us all the way from Ireland, where he's living now. Well, it's a, a pretty amazing story. Like, uh, just, you know, the whole complex issue of that story is one thing. Oh. But then also, you know, for them to have written that whilst, you know, pretty much maintaining their day jobs and, um, mm. you know, quite intensive day jobs as well, I think it's uh, yes. it must have been a, a big year for them really <laughs> yes and as we heard the um the sheer amount of research that mm. went into this book i think is an incredible testament to, not only to their commitment but obviously to just really good investigative skills because it is a hard book uh, it is a hard topic to make sure that you get it right that you're not exploiting people that you're not overly crucifying certain people, but you are also representing the people who feel that in, a terrible injustice has been done. And what I think this book has done is found the a, a great balance between all of those things. So mm. uh, that's what I found so impressive about it is that um, it, was, it, it was written – you know, as objectively and as balanced as a book like this can be. So I, I just think it's an excellent piece of work. Oh. Anyway, so it's certainly a must for anybody who's writing nonfiction, who, anybody who wants to discover investigative journalism, uh, but also anyone who just wants to have a look at some good writing. Anyway, we're almost at the end of this week's episode because it's a little bit longer than normal. What are you doing in the coming week then, Al, now that you're going to be launched straight back into regular life when school oh, comes back? I'm going to be taking myself out for breakfast and yeah. I'm going to be luxuriating in the silence of my house and I might get some work done as well. Do you go to the same cafe when you go on your morning walk every time or do you have a mixture that you choose from? I do have a mixture, but I generally tend to go to the same one because I take the dog with me every time and I have to go oh, yes. somewhere where I can easily access a coffee, a friend and a dog. 
you know, sort of with a dog in tow. So I do tend to go to the same one, but there's, I do have a couple of options where they'll serve me out the window if necessary. So um, I, I, I mix it up, but I have a regular crew that I, that I have morning coffee with and they all tend to go to the same spot. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like my office. It's a community. Well, I don't, you know, it's like I, I don't have the daily, I haven't got that interaction all day. So I, I do like to set, you know, start the day with a bit of a chat. Um, Mm just to set myself up because otherwise you kind of feel very, um, very alienated, you know, like if you're just walking around by yourself with the dog, speaking to no one, and then you go back and you sit (laughs) in your office all day, um, you can feel a little bit like the world's saddest person. But, um, yeah, so my, my crew is there to, you know, listen to me bang on about stuff, which is good. Much like the podcast community listens to me bang (laughs) on about stuff. You know how your youngest son wanted a Fitbit? And now, yeah, you know, yeah. So, do you count your steps? I used to, but it, I, I kind of had. I do have a Fitbit, and I don't wear it anymore because I, it got ridiculous. Like I got to the point where, so my average was always around about the sort of eleven to twelve thousand anyway. And so I, I kind of like. But then, what would happen would be that I would freak out if I wasn't wearing the Fitbit, you know, if I'd taken it off for some reason and then I've yeah. forgotten to put it back on, like the steps didn't count. And like mm. my husband would be going, but you still did them. And I'm like, yeah, but yeah. it's not registered. And so now I've got to go and do another 2000. And he'd be like, okay, I think this is getting a little bit silly. <laughs> yeah. So I actually stopped where once I, once I'd reassured myself that I was pretty much doing 10,000 a day anyway, I, um, after wearing it for, you know, how many months, I basically took it off. Oh, right. Oh, good on you for doing 10,000 regularly. Jeez, that's that's awesome. I had a Fitbit, the one that you clipped to your bra, but then I put my bra in the wash with the Fitbit still on it. (laughs) That was the end of the Fitbit. Yeah, after only like three weeks. That was expensive. That was expensive. Mm -hmm. How many steps were you doing? Um, at the time, it was a bit disastrous, kind of not that many, because it mm. was the middle of winter and I was living in the Yarra Valley at the time, so it was very cold and I therefore hardly got out of the house. But now I've reinstated my Apple Watch, which counts your steps, so I'm a bit more motivated to to get them up. And But I need to build it into my day so that I'm not doing steps just to get steps. Well, I think that's what I realized was that, yeah, I think, well, you know, I walk the dog, I walk the dog a couple of times a day. So I do my morning one and now I go in the afternoons with my husband as well. And so I'm Mm. doing, you know, I am actually fairly active as far as, I mean, it's, it's difficult as a writer because you are sitting a lot, but you know, Mm. I'm also hanging the wash, like I work from home, I hang the washing out, I walk the dog, I go to the shops, you know, I faff around and I realized that I was actually, you know, on that level more active than I actually thought I was. Yes. Well, the, the thing that I've got to stop myself doing, let's say I'm sitting at my desk and I check, you know, my steps and I sit here for another hour and I check my steps again, and I'm like, "Why are you doing that? Like you, you would have got no more steps." It's, it's a bit like checking your email. Anyway, yeah. let's okay. move on. Yeah, let's then. seriously let's All move right. on. I think we've had enough <laughs> where, fun here now. Where do we find you online, Al? 
You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at alisontaitwriter. And you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. Also, just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook and connect with me there and connect with both of us in the listener community on Facebook. Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and click to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.